are talking about hungers, hungers of the heart, hungers of the soul. Today we're going to actually cover two hungers in one story, okay? So open your Bibles to John chapter 10 with me. My name is Pastor Dale. If you're new to Seacoast, I'd love to meet you uh, after the services any Sunday. So uh, love to do that. But turn in the word to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thanks for the fact that uh, as we learn about who Jesus is, uh, all the great I am's of Jesus. Today we look at uh, Jesus teaching us about himself, teaching us about his role in our lives. And I pray that as we uh, learn uh, what it means for him to be the good shepherd, I pray, Father, you help us understand how that speaks to the desires of our heart. So we love you. We thank you for your uh, holy scriptures. Thank you for your, uh, for the Lord Jesus, the living word of God, and for the written word that we can study together, live by, in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. You know, one of the most frightful statements that you don't want to hear, in fact, if there were a top 10 statements that you don't want to hear in life, one of those would certainly be the statement at the end of the day that someone that you loved lost their life. That he or she lost their life. You know, you can have tragedies, you can have California wildfires that sweep and burn up thousands of acres of property. You can have tornadoes in the Midwest that swoop through a town and cause all kinds of damage and property loss and devastation. But at the end of the day, even the secular culture, when they report the news, they always seem to care about that question. What was the loss of life? Because if the destruction is huge, but the loss of life is minimal, then people are thankful. On the other hand, there can be a very small tragedy that, in, in some cases, I remember a fire back east in a, in a town up the coast in the northeast that burst out during a rock concert deal in a, in, in a small venue a few years back, and remember this? And, 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 and it only burned down one building. One building. But over 100 people lost their lives. And it was a tragedy. Not because of the loss of the building, but because so many people lost their life. What we're talking about is the hunger of the soul for life. Jesus has been referring to this often. He said, I am the, the water of life. I am like a living spring of water. He says, I'm the bread of life. We've studied that. He says, I am the, I am the source of light and life. Repeatedly, Jesus keeps coming back to this theme of life. And he's going to do it again one more time with us this morning when he talks about his role as a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd who, who provides life for the sheep. But we're going to see that Jesus doesn't just provide life, he also, as the Good Shepherd, is going to talk about another hunger of the heart, and that's tied to life, and that's love. A lot of times when people say, you know something, my life is not worth living, they often follow that with a statement, because, see if you can complete it, because nobody really, yeah, nobody really loves me, nobody really cares, nobody gives a rip, nobody really, you know, whatever phrase you want to use. That, that, that life has seemed to be rooted in the fact that we need life, but we don't just want to be alive physically. You want to have a quality of life, right? I mean, you don't want to just be survivor. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> I am the great shepherd. I'll help you survive. Is that really what draws people? I don't think so. I, I, I offer you life. I also offer it abundantly. We're going to study that famous passage today. And at the heart of that often is do you feel loved? Do you have life? Do you feel loved? Let's look at the story together, and we're going to see how those two hungers of the heart get addressed by Jesus in his role as the good shepherd. Pick it up, chapter 10. Here we go. Chapter 10, it begins with the parable of the good shepherd. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door <clears throat> into the fold of the sheep, but he climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. Now, what is Jesus describing? You've got to picture the scenario. Jesus is talking about something that you and I probably have never seen before, so it doesn't clue to us. But his audience, that Jewish audience uh, you know, uh, of that era, would have understood this. When he says that, uh, truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep. In other words, what he's talking about is a sheepfold. 
It's an enclosure that was often used to provide protection at night for the sheep. And, but you get to understand that in this scenario, it was often a sheepfold that was owned by someone who had the land, who built the enclosure, and then other shepherds would each, many shepherds would bring their flocks, their small flocks, and they would take them through the door, past the doorkeeper, usually the owner of the sheepfold, and, and the sheep would go in and they would spend the night mixing with the other sheep and being protected from the wolves and from and, 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 and all the other dangers and the shepherd could get some sleep, you know. So the reality is this sheepfold was a common fold usually where more than one shepherd put their sheep in for the night for protection, took them out during the day to let them find pasture land and get food and water, put them back in the sheepfold at night. In and out. That's what Jesus is describing. And he says there are some people that come into the sheepfold, but they don't come through the gate like a shepherd should, past the doorkeeper, but they climb over. And he says those people that are entering by another means than the appropriate gate are thieves and robbers. Verse 2. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Makes sense. People are thinking, well, of course. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own sheep, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. Now a stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him, because they do not know the voice of of the strangers. Now this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but the people didn't understand what he was talking about. This is not uncommon. They didn't understand that those things which were he, that, that he had been saying to them, they didn't get. So why are you telling us the obvious? Because everyone in his audience already knew all this information. Everyone knew of sheepfolds. Everyone knew that, that the shepherd would come. Everyone knew that when a shepherd who's bonded with his sheep he owns them, he loves them, he cares for them. When the shepherd comes to the gate in the morning and he calls out his sheep, he says they recognize his voice and they follow. Because that's what sheep are designed to do. Okay, you know, sheep are in need of a shepherd. They like having a shepherd because, you know, without the shepherd, they're in trouble. You know, you know what you call a sheep without a shepherd? Dinner. <laughs> yeah, it's wolf bait, okay? Yeah, so, you know, that's not a good thing to be. So the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and, and he can actually call them out by name, and they will follow him. They recognize his voice, and his sheep will separate out from the other sheep and follow him, and he'll take them out to where they can get fat and sassy for another day, bring them back in the next night, come back, bring them back out. the next. So that's the process that Jesus is describing. But all of his audience is thinking, so what's up? Why are you telling us what we already know? And then he goes into it. Verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, after he let them sit and just kind of wonder, what's up? Why are you teaching this? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, anytime you see that tag word, truly, truly, it's not just Bible talk, okay? That's in the Greek language. That's how you called attention to something important. If you wanted to make sure that you didn't miss an important item, you would, it's just like today, I would say, hey, pay attention. This part you need to get. That's what truly, truly means. Okay, it's just a shorter version of it. So Jesus calls their attention to what he's about to teach, and he tells them, why did I just tell you this, that, you know, the sheep come in, the real shepherd calls their voice, the thief comes over the wall. Why did you tell us this? He says, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the door into the sheepfold, into protection, into safety. I am the door. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. They're not the real door. They're just climbing over the wall, okay, to do business, to do bad business. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. He repeats it a second time. Because my guess is Jesus is looking, they're going like, well, did he just say he's the door? Whoa, what's up? What, what do you mean by that? I am the door. So he, he repeats himself to get their attention. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is now saying, look, I am the door. You come in through the right door through me. And you're going to come into safety. You'll be part of the common fold. And, and, and you'll, we'll go in and out. And I'm going to feed and water you, care for you, put you back in at night, take you back out in the morning. You know, you know this, is, this is the life 
of the sheep. This is, if you're a sheep, this is the good life. You know, so he says, and then we'll slaughter you. <laughs> okay, we get hungry. But that's not, that's not part of this story. That's another story, okay? Yeah, that's the, you know, sheep needs to fulfill their God-given duty. Okay. But Jesus goes into it deeper. He says, I'm the sheep. Go in through me. The, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they or you might have life and have it abundantly. One of my favorite verses. And then he switches his metaphor. And he stops talking about him being the door. And now he says, I'm in the story. I'm not only the door. I play two roles. I'm the door into the, into the fold. But, hey, I'm also the good shepherd. So I'm the door and the shepherd that uses the door. This is kind of crazy. But Jesus has a dual role here. I'm the door and the shepherd that uses the door. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand, not a real shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, well, when he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and flees. And the, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He's not really concerned about the sheep. There's no doubt in the audience, by the way, at this point in what's happening, Jesus is looking at two groups. He's looking at the people that are checking him out, some of them following him. He's also in a constant dialogue in each of these stories with the religious leaders who were wanting to kill him, who were rejecting him, refusing to believe in him, who were teaching the people um, a false way to try to get to God through obedience to the law and, and, and in slavery to the law. And, and, and you just got to make yourself good enough or else God's not going to accept you. And, you know, and Jesus is saying to them, look, uh, I am the door into safety, not them. They're like thieves. When they jump the fence, they come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we're going to see the implications of that in just a minute. But he says, but I'm not like that because I am willing to die for my sheep. Catch that. I am the good shepherd, verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life. Repetition is important. Anytime you see something, Jesus just repeats himself. He's not stuttering. He's driving home the main point. I'm different because I'm the kind of shepherd that will lay down my life for the sheep. That's what I'm going to do. I have other sheep. Now, we're going to come back to this verse, so underline it. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. I'm not going to stay dead. I'm, I'm going to rise from the dead. But I lay down my life for the sheep, and the Father loves that. Let's pull up there. What do I learn from this thing? There's at least three major lessons that I want to take, at least that spoke to my heart and life this week. Here we go. Number one. Number lesson number one is this. If you want to take some notes, I always provide an outline for you. The point of the good shepherd. Here we go. Number one. Jesus is saying, I'm the real shepherd. I'm your real shepherd. The others are thieves. I'm not a thief. I'm the real shepherd. And the key distinction that Jesus tries to draw from this is this. He says, the false shepherds steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Here's my takeaway on this. If you want to tweet this, you can. Here it goes. I love tweetable kind of short statements. Uh, the false shepherds are always takers, but the good shepherd is a giver of life. False shepherds are always taking. In other words, they promise something, but they really want, what can I get out of you? What can I get from you? And, 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 and the false shepherds, and he's looking at these religious leaders when he's saying this. You know, they're in it for themselves. They're like hired hands. They don't really care for the sheep, and they're certainly not going to die for you. But I am different. I will die for you. And Jesus says, because I'm here that you might have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus says, look, I'm a giver of life. I'm like the shepherd that, man, my greatest joy is to see my sheep 
fat, sassy, not being slaughtered yet, okay, maybe just sheared occasionally, but the reality is I want my sheep well taken care of, well cared for, and I'm the door that you're going to walk through for protection and, and to be saved. And then I'm also, I'm the good shepherd too. So I'm the good shepherd that's going to come to the door and I'm going to take you in and out, in and out, and we're going to have a blast. Summarized by that phrase, I came that you might have life, verse 10, and Come in and out. Have it abundantly. Jesus says, I want to just give you life. I want to give you life. I think one, a couple things. When Jesus says give you life, think of two things. Number one, eternal life. He says, if you come in through me, you will be saved. He's talking about forgiveness of your sins. Eternal life and total forgiveness. Jesus promises that. Based on his death on the cross, his resurrection. He says, that's what I'm going to do for you. But he's also talking about the abundant life. He says, I I came that you might have life, but also have it abundantly. You know, it really has fascinated me, this verse. You know, because so um, so many religions of the world are all about what they can take from you. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of Christians growing up in the American church begin to view Christianity uh, and Jesus as, you know, they want to take from me. You know, and Jesus is saying, I'm not about taking anything from you. I'm not about uh, diminishing your life, uh, the lesser life. I'm, I'm about giving you the abundant life, the good life, as well as eternal life. Now, how, in other words, I want to give you life after you die, forever and ever. But even while you're living here, I want to give you abundant life. You know, I used to ask myself this question when I was, I remember back in college, it was the first time I encountered this passage. And I thought, you know something, if that's really true, then even if there was no heaven, no hell, nothing after death, even if the fact of the matter was you come from dirt, you come from dust, you somehow live and you, and you go back to the dust, even if you buy into that philosophy of life, would you... Be wise to follow Jesus. It's a good question. Or do you just follow Jesus because you want to be forgiven and have hope after this life? See, the conclusion I come to from this verse is Jesus is saying, you know something, I'm going to give you eternal life. But even if that wasn't the issue, I give you abundant life. Because I give you life the way it's designed to be lived. I help you understand who you are as a, as a spiritual being, as a person, in a relationship with God, I hope you understand the fact that, guess what? Whether you buy into it or not, you are like a sheep. And smart sheep need shepherds. Okay, remember what I told you earlier. A sheep without a shepherd is what? Answer? Yeah. Lamb chops, very creative. I like that. I'll write that down. Okay, next time. It's dinner. It's wolf bait. Okay? You know, have you ever, you know, have you ever seen sheep? portrayed as like just kind of off on their own wandering around the woods i mean there's no even cartoons that portray sheep like that unless it's like again wolf bait you know the reality is sheep travel in flocks you know they travel together um and sheep well what are they are they flocks or herds what are sheep who's a he's a shepherd thank you flocks i thought so okay it's just, I was picturing birds all the time. I'm thinking, am I being crazy or what? Okay, yeah, so they travel together and they need a shepherd to follow. And scripture from beginning in teaches us this, that even though we are created by God, given individual uh, heart, soul, mind, and will, we can make decisions. We are designed for God. We are designed to live life in obedience to God. Not because God is in the business of taking from us, but because he's in the business of wanting to give us abundant life so my conclusion was very clear way back when i was in college even if there was no heaven no hell i would want to follow jesus because it's the best way to live i think his wisdom for life it teaches me what matters what doesn't matter what i should love and care about what i should not get stressed over it teaches me all kinds of wisdom for life that the world's uh, people that are always teasing me with their offer of life Uh, They are like thieves. They want what they can get. If you want to test this out, just compare it to the American dream. The American dream is just a general phrase for, uh, you know, climb the ladder, climb the corporate ladder, uh, 
You'll be happier if you own more stuff. Therefore, we have one of the wealthiest nations in the world with one of the largest uh, debt ratios in the world. So, you know, why? Well, because we're always being told by false shepherds, life is found in owning more stuff. Life is found in having bigger, better, newer. And, and I get sucked into it too, okay? So it's easy to buy into that. But Jesus is saying, you know, those other false shepherds, false ideologies, materialism, uh, self-worship, uh, just, you know, just, just uh, well, let me quote... Uh, you know, I mean, I like Oprah. She's funny. She's nice. But I don't like her philosophy. I'm sorry. One of the most influential women in the world. And basically her message is be true to yourself and, and whatever makes you happy, kind of go that way. And, and just be true to yourself and do what, um, whatever makes you happy. Now, what I find is being true to myself usually screws up my life. I need to be true to God because God is smarter than Dale and, and, and the shepherd is smarter than the sheep and smart sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they follow. And Jesus says, and the good shepherd is willing to lay down his life to prove that he loves you. So the need for the, the need of the soul, the hunger of the soul for life is met in the good shepherd, the hunger for the soul of the soul to know that they are loved is met by the good shepherd that lays down his life. That's the next point. I am the good shepherd, not a hired hand. I'm the good shepherd, not a hired hand. And the big distinction was very clear in the story. The good shepherd will die for his sheep, but the hired hand runs. He flees from the wolf. And what Jesus is driving home is, look, it's one thing to promise you eternal life and the abundant life, but how do you know I'm going to deliver? I mean, how do you know you can trust Jesus to really be the, to offer the best for your life as well as your eternity? And Jesus says the ultimate proof is, unlike the other philosophies of the world, unlike the other religions, unlike these religious Pharisees that just want to tell you to, to, uh, to grow up, follow the law, and and, and, and you'll and be, make yourself good enough for God. Unlike any of those false shepherds, I will prove it because I will lay down my life for my sheep. Count on it. It's coming. But I'm going to rise from the dead. And he did it. So how does that relate to everyday life? Well, when I'm suffering, for example, Romans chapter 8 is about suffering. And it tells me basically... You can trust me when you go through tough times. You can, t- you can trust me to provide your needs. And then Romans 8.31 says this. It's not on the screen. I was pointing to the screen, but it's not there, but it's in my Bible. Here we go. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do you know that God is for you? How do you really know he's for you? Next phrase. For he did not spare even his own son but delivered him up for us all. So how will he not also freely give us all things that is that we need? Surely you can trust a God who sacrifices his son, a father that sacrifices his son for you. There's no greater love. I had three kids, uh, one boy, two girls. I love all of them. I love all of them equally. At least that's what I tell them. Looking at Ryan, Ryan, you got three, right? But you hit a home run, three boys, right? Boom, boom, boom. Okay. All right. That's not a home run. That's a triple threat. But anyway, here we go. So which one of them you want to give up so that Dale can live? I need a new, uh, uh, pick an organ. What organ can I not? Okay. I, I, need, I, need a, I need a heart transplant. There we go. Let's just go, forget, skip, the, skip the liver, the kidney, the bladder, everything, okay? I need a new heart, and I'm a perfect match for one of your boys. What are you going to tell him? Depends on the day. <laughs> well, Sarah already shook her head, okay? In fact, Sarah said, take Ryan. <laughs> yeah, so Sarah would sacrifice a husband, but not a son, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's true. You know, 
You know, the interesting thing about that is most of us would sacrifice a spouse before we'd sacrifice a kid. Many of us would sacrifice even ourselves, maybe, to save a friend's life. Not often. As Ryan said, you've got to catch me on a good day. But very few of us would sacrifice your only begotten son. And that is what the father did. See, the father sent the son, and the son said, I will do it, to die for the sheep. And that's a level of love that we cannot even begin to comprehend. I had one boy, two girls. I'm not sacrificing any of the three of them for your person, okay? I'm just not doing it. I'm not doing it. If they want to choose to give their life up for you, that's their business. But I'm not sacrificing them. I'm probably not sacrificing me. We have a heavenly father that loves us so much, a a, a good shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep. And, And therefore, he says, trust me. See, that's the practical everyday application is when you bump up against real life and and the dangers of life and the pains in life and the disappointments in life and and they say, trust me, I will give you life and life abundant if you just trust and follow me. That's worth worth the passage, I think. So Jesus says, look, I'm, I'm the good shepherd, unlike others. I'm unique because I provide real life. Forever and abundant. I'm unique because I will prove it by dying for my sheep. Number three, and this surprised me when this popped out of the passage. Look at verse 15 and 16 with me. Verse 15 says this, Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I will lay down my life for the sheep. And then he has a thought, and it's almost like Jesus has a side thought because he's looking at his sheep and And by the way, he's looking at the people that are beginning to follow him. And he's looking at an audience. And what's the nature of that audience? Who's in the crowd? What's the ethnicity of the audience? Jewish. This is by far probably a totally Jewish or heavily Jewish audience that Jesus is speaking to. And then he says a puzzling thing that is kind of like a side thought. He says, oh, and I have other sheep. So I lay down my life for the sheep, and he's perhaps looking, perhaps he's gesturing. I think when he talks about the wolves, he's probably kind of looking over a few glances in the direction of the religious leaders. He had to be doing that. They knew who he was talking about, and that's why they want to kill him at the end of the story, okay? So, so you know, he, they're, they're the bad guys, but he's looking at these people, and he says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. By the way, I have other sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And they, I must bring them along also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Verse 16. One flock with one shepherd. What he's saying is the good shepherd will gather one global flock from all peoples. Jesus' laying out was a radical idea. Because his audience understood he was the Jewish Messiah. He was the the Christ. He was the Savior. He was coming to save them of their sin, but also eventually to set up the kingdom of God on earth. And, And of course, God's people are going to be in the middle of God's kingdom. And so you could picture, they're all thinking, wow, man, the Good Shepherd loves us Jewish people. You know, his flock is a is is going to be from us. And then he says, but you know, I got other sheep that must follow me also. And they'll hear my voice, and they're going to follow. And I'm not going to have multiple flocks. I'm going to have one flock, period. One global flock of all peoples. Now, that was a radical thought in this time. But it's not so radical for us today. But I think it has huge implications. It's teaching us that Christ's flock is a beautiful global gathering of all peoples united by their love for and obedience to one Savior Shepherd. That's my summary of this section. See, they're united by their love for and obedience to one Savior Shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And he's going to build this global, beautiful flock called the Kingdom of God, the movement of Jesus Christ, later nicknamed the Church. But it's going to be a global church, not a 
regional one. Now, this really kind of got me thinking, and I decided to kind of camp on this as before we end the, our, our morning. Because to me, if we as a church are going to understand Jesus as the good shepherd, then we have to engage with this idea that we are not the church with a capital C. We're just the church with a little c. The church with a capital C that you and I belong to is one church global. When I go to uh, Africa to uh, teach, and I'll be back there in July uh, with a whole team from Seacoast, uh, those of you that have been with me uh, know that when I go, I almost always say the same thing. A a few years ago, I I used to go and I would say, you know, the American church sends its love to you here in Rwanda, the Rwandan church. And then all of a sudden one day I just felt convicted by God or something that, Dale, that's not the way to talk to these people. Because you're talking about an American church, a Rwandan church, African church, that they, they, they don't exist. So, I, so, so now when I go, I almost always say the same thing. And it kind of surprises them because they're used to the, the former being said by, especially by prideful Americans that come to help fix them. And, you know, and, and I say, you know something? I don't bring you greetings from the American church because the American church doesn't exist. And they're kind of like, the room gets real quiet. I said, the American church doesn't exist. In fact, the Rwandan church doesn't exist. The, the Congolese church doesn't exist. The Tanzanian church does not exist. I bring you greetings from the church in California, in America. But it's not the American church. It's the church in America. And the subtle difference is I say, because there is only one church, and I want you here in Africa to know that we feel that we are part of you and you are part of us, and that's a different way to think. So now we are one church, and all of a sudden there's some responsibility. If we're one church, one family of God, you know, then we've got some responsibility, and if, the, and it, and if I have family in one part of the world that's hurting and I can help them, then I, I have a different level of compassion for my family. Amen? Are you, do, you, do you do that? Yeah. So I think that's what Jesus is driving home. So what are we as a church going to do to try to increase our sense of compassion and care? First, we need to love Encinitas so that we're doing more to be loving on Encinitas. You've been hearing about that, about that a lot. But this passage also calls us to love those that Jesus is calling to himself to be part of his global church that are brothers and sisters of ours in other parts of the world. So we are being purposeful at Seacoast to increase that global aspect of our ministry. I want to give you a brief update because I I don't think you've really captured yet um, the exciting opportunity that God is placing in front of not me, but you as a church. Here's a quick five-minute review, and then I want to expand your vision even more. We've sent several teams to develop uh, leadership in Africa, and this is our 2014 team that will go out to Rwanda from July 24th to August 3rd. But what I want to do is back up a little bit and, 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 and remind you that when we first started talking about Africa, it was Rwanda, and then God began to expand it, next slide, from Rwanda to Congo to Tanzania last year. Last fall, for the first time, God opened a chance for us to go visit Tanzania and to teach a group of pastors who had never heard our leadership material taught yet, but they, they'd heard good things about it in Rwanda, uh, so we went and taught it in Tanzania. So in the fall of 2013, we trained about, about 100 leaders, about 70 in Rwanda, about 30 more in Tanzania. And, and the response has been very encouraging. Uh, we've translated the book, it's on the picture on the slide, into Kenyawandan for those in Rwanda, so they have it in their own language. Thank you. And then, next slide. And then we've also uh, got plans to, to really, uh, the, the vision is this. We really believe that, that if you want to have healthy churches that can change a country, you've got to back up. You've got to have healthy families make up healthy churches. And if you want to have healthy families, you've got to have healthy pastors that have healthy families, right? Because they're going to be the shepherds and the models of those flocks, to those flocks. So the bottom line is we want to, we want to, we want to make pastors healthy, by teaching them biblical leadership principles and marriage family principles so that they can have healthy families, so that healthy pastors with healthy families can help the church get healthy and, and change their world. That's our 
calling. And God has given us opportunities to do that from 2011 to 2013. And the goal is we're focusing on what they call trainers of trainers. What they, those are high-level uh, pastor leaders whose responsibility is they say, I will sign on the dotted line that if you teach me your material, I will take it and teach it to other pastors. Some of these pastors are involved in, uh, one is the guy who's responsible for all the Pentecostal pastors of Rwanda, about 3,000 churches. Another one's responsible for training all the Assembly of God pastors, about 2,000 churches. And you've got the guys over the Baptist churches and the Anglican churches, and, and they've kind of bought into this. So it's very exciting. And, and our goal, conservatively, is if they follow through, by 2015, we will have trained over 4,000 pastors. And that can change lives. That can change a culture. That can change the church in Rwanda. So we're just thrilled to be doing that. But then God surprises us. Uh, let me give you a couple examples of how it's working. Uh, here's two of my favorite guys. This is uh, Richard, Pastor Richard Jumba uh, in Tanzania. And Richard is, uh, uh, went through the training, and he said, Dale, I'm already using it. And he sends me an email with a couple pictures. He said, here's a group of about eight young pastors that are being trained. And, and the background is the very training slide that we use for the training material. And he's showing me that we've trained them, we've taken them, through the training, and now they're going back to their home churches. They're mostly from the Maasai people, the Maasai people of northern Thailand. And uh, they're mostly herdsmen. And, uh, and just to show you, one of these very guys, see the guy in red? The guy in red, let me show you him and his wife and kid uh, standing in front of their home. This is in a remote area. And yeah, you know, this is a, their humble home, and, and, they're, and they're reaching their village for Jesus Christ. And, and wow. They're living in a home made out of cow patties. That's what that is. But that's what they build homes out of because they got a lot of them. They're, they have cattle. Cattles, you know what cattle do? They eat, they... Boop. Okay, and you know, and there you go. There you got, you got building blocks for your home. Because if you look around the house, there's not a lot of anything else around to build with. But you know, some, that's their life. But to think that Seacoast Church is training this pastor to reach his culture. Now, if that doesn't get you excited, you should go find a heart. Amen. See, that's why we spend the money to send people over there to do training. Let me show you. Now, go to Rwanda. Here's another favorite guy, man. Pastor Norman. Pastor Norman, he got excited about the training. He's, a, he's an evangelist, but he's a, he goes from village to village every few weeks and holds evangelistic programming. And when he does, he says, hey, Dale, as long as I'm pulling together all the pastors in the village to do evangelism, I'm going to give him your training. So here's his latest class. He sent me this picture a while back. Next slide. There's his class gathered in front of a, a good mud brick church like a lot of them are in the rural areas. And, and they've all holding, they're holding their books. That Seacoast Church paid to translate and print. Now you've got to picture it. Those are all leaders who are, who are in different churches. And, and, and God is, by His grace multiplying your investment in Africa. So this year, we get ready to go back again. Tanzania says, please come back and do more training. Rwanda does. Someone in Congo gets a taste of the material, and they said, by the way, it's being translated into Swahili now, uh, For so pray for that. They're not quite finished, but they got to get done in the next two weeks. Into Swahili for Tanzania. It's being translated into African French for Congo. So now we're going to be going to Congo. So... You know, it, the thing is spreading, God is blessing, and I want you as a church to know this is not Dale's thing, this is your thing, I cannot do it without you. And now we're sending a bigger team back. The 2014 team is challenged last fall by a conversation, next slide, that my wife had with Pastor Christine on the left. Pastor Christine is uh, married to the, uh, she's a, she co-pastors a church in Kigali, Rwanda, her husband is the director, the national director of the Assembly of God churches. Uh, and she said to my wife on the last day we were there, please come back and do this again. But also don't forget women because, I mean, women are in our training already. But she said a lot of pastors' wives have never been trying, trained how to grow in their faith, how to be a pastor's wife, how to engage in ministry with their spouse. Would you train women in ministry and pastors' wives? So guess what? God's raised up a team of five other teachers from Seacoast who will go there just to do a conference for women. As far as I know, it's never been done. How cool.
So pray for them. While I'm doing my conference, they're going to do their conference. And then they're going to do another marriage conference. Next slide shows you the awesome agenda that we're going to be looking at, a a Congo conference that Becky and I will do for denominational leaders. Then we'll go to Tanzania for a few days, do a conference there. Then we go to Rwanda, meet up with the whole team, and do three conferences in Rwanda. So I need for you to pray for our team. Pray for our team. But now, the surprise of the morning. God has also really burdened our heart to not just work with leaders. Because sometimes you go to places where there are no leaders for the church. Why? Next slide. Because there is no church. If there's no church, there's no leaders. There are large millions of people, unreached people groups, that have yet to really get the church planted among them. So we want to not just do leadership training, we're going to do a whole new initiative called an unreached people group ministry toward a group in Tanzania. And what's really neat today is I have two friends with me today, uh, Laura Prebish and uh, Kathy Keller. Come on up. And I want them to take about five minutes or so and share with you about this people group. Because guess what? They live in Tanzania. These, would you welcome two Tanzanians? Yeah. Real in the flesh Tanzanians. Welcome. Welcome, Kathy. Kathy, I'll move out of the way. You all walk us through some slides. Tell us about why you're living in Tanzania. And how, by the way, how long have you lived in Africa? Um, I've been there for 10 years. 10 years? And look. I've been there since 2000. Since 2000. Okay, that's about 14 years. So you have 24 years of experience by two young ladies who are early 20s, probably. So, right? Exactly. Right. Okay, well, tell us. Okay. <laughs> Tell us your story. Well, good morning. I'm Laura, and this is Kathy. And we work with an unreached people group in Tanzania. And I know most people, when they think of Africa and they think of Tanzania, they think of Africans. And there are lots of Africans living in Tanzania, of course. But there is a minority group who comes from South Asia, um, the India or from Pakistan. And they've lived in Tanzania and in Kenya and other parts of East Africa for several generations. And they call themselves Tanzania as well. But they're highly unreached. Most of them are Muslims or Hindus. And they have very few believers worldwide amongst this group. And we, and most of the people in Tanzania come from the state of Gujarat in India. And that's a highly um, persecuted state in India. Um, it's hard to work and get visas to go to India to work with these people. And God has given us lots of freedom and lots of opportunities to serve in Tanzania. We minister in their, or we, we, we teach in their schools. We run clubs for kids. We do camps. We just visit women and their families in their home. And we do a whole host of things trying to reach and sharing the gospel with these people where they would never, ever hear. And while I'm talking, you're going to see a couple of slides that just give some information on a few of the different unreached people groups that we work with. But I'm going to tell you a really short story about one people group. Um, they are the Parsi people. They're Zoroastrian, which means that they worship the sun. There's 7 million of them in the world, and there's probably 0 to 10 believers. Um, Operation World calls them um, least reached or unreached. There's not enough believers in their communities to ever have an impact for the gospel. And we know one family, and this is actually a really fun, positive story to tell you. Although this work can be very difficult, can be trying, and sometimes you can feel like you're knocking your head against the wall, God does give us little glimpses of his amazingness and what he really can do. So we met this one little girl when she was about eight years old. She started coming to our camps and to our clubs, started hearing about Jesus and the gospel narrations. She came to camp. She lied. She was supposed to be 13. She said that she was 13, but she was 11. And she came to camp, and she had no idea what camp was going to be like. And the very first time that she started hearing music, she asked one of the leaders if it was going to be high school musical songs. And, of course, she heard her very first worship song, and it was amazing. Well, fast forward, we've known this family for about five or six years. And just recently, about uh, over a year ago, they decided to give... Um, Jesus a try. And that's exactly what her father said. I'm going to give Christ a try. He said, don't tell anybody, especially because we have a lot of mutual friends. So even though in their culture, they don't eat beef, they worship the sun, he did give Jesus a try. And after a few months of doing that and going to Bible studies and learning more and more, and his daughter um, at camp one time was asked in a small group, I was um, her, her leader in the room, and we asked her, 
and the, the kids, if God was calling you, if Jesus was calling you, would you listen? And she was enthusiastically, yes. So I knew God was doing something. And so um, fast forward, now her family has told, they came to me and they said, you know what, it's okay, you can tell everybody that we are followers of Jesus. One time I accidentally offered her some beef, it was in a samosa, so I, I didn't realize it could have been beef, I wasn't sure, and I started to apologize, and the daughter said to her family, they said, no, we can eat beef now because we're in Christ, and we don't have to worry about anything like that bad happening to us. So it's just a really awesome story, and we are looking forward to a team coming, so if you're interested, we'd love to talk to you, and um, you can ask us anything about these people. We love them, and we hope that you're going to love them too. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So Laura and Kathy are going to be at this table over next to the cross with some information. If you'd like to learn more about that, if you'd like to financially support what we're doing in Africa, uh, if you'd like to partner in just praying for them, getting to know them, uh, please do so. I've known Laura for a bunch of years as a missionary of the church in Fullerton that I pastored before, and I've been with uh, her in actually Rwanda first, and then and now in Tanzania as well. So they're, it's, great to, uh, it's great to have them with us today. So what was the response of people to Jesus when he said this? Uh, in summary, it was this. He is a nut. That's exactly what they said. Verse 19, a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? In other words, are you in or are you out? See, some said, you know, I think he's insane. Others said, I think he's demon-possessed. I am the door to the sheepfold, and I am the good shepherd at the same time, and follow me, everyone else is a thief, and blah, 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 blah. I mean, they just said, this guy's nuts. But some people said, but what if he really is? Now, we know the backstory. We know the next story. We know that Jesus has gone on with his death and resurrection to prove that he really is the good shepherd that he promised he would be. So who's your shepherd? Not just who's your shepherd, but secondly, are you willing to follow him and engage in his mission? Not just follow him so that he can be your shepherd and you're his fat and sassy sheep and yeah, it's kind of cool to go in and out and let him feed and water you and care for you, but are you willing to engage in the mission, the global mission, as you pray, as you give, as you go? Perhaps some of you may be the next person who is sent, like Laura and Kathy, to live in Tanzania and help us plant the church among the uh, Gujarat people. I don't know. But Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. We're going to end the sermon in a little different way I want to kind of challenge you to do an African experiment with me in light of the theme of the morning. Uh, a lot of times in Africa when they say, let's pray, all of a sudden that you get shocked because everyone stands up and they just pray out loud. Not one person prays for the group, they just all talk to God. So I'm going to tell you, you have permission to be silent and pray silently. That's kind of the American way. But I want to challenge you out of your comfort zone. And what we're going to do is this. I want to ask you to very quietly stand, and I want to bring up some prayer requests on the screen and uh, to prompt you to pray for certain things for us as a church, for you as well. And I want to just encourage every one of you in either little small groups or by yourself, just pray out loud, pray as loud as you want to, and God will hear you, or you can whisper or pray silently. But let's all pray instead of me praying. Does that sound all right? Okay, let's pray. Father God, we begin to pray to you right now, giving thanks for the good shepherd. Would you focus on that and tell him why you love him? Just feel free to pray out loud together if you like. Would you pray for Seacoast leadership training in Africa?
pray with your eyes open if you want to be reminded of all they'll be doing. Pray for that women's conference team. Pray for Laura and Kathy for the starting of a church among the Gujarat people. Pray for Seacoast Unreached People Group Initiative starting this fall even starting now for Tanzania. Pray for the uh, financing and support in every way, prayer support, for people to give generously. to help fund these adventures for the kingdom. Father God, we thank you so much that we, every one of us, have the joy of uh, following the Good Shepherd in building a global church to represent you to the world. Thank you that we all can partner in that as we pray, as we give, even as we go, and some of us even move overseas and live there. Would you uh, imprint that vision on the hearts of our church? Would you receive our worship as we sing to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's offer your worship.